Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me, as always, is my producer, Kevin Black, and a special guest today, someone who I've wanted to have on. You've heard one of his associates over at the Off the Ball Network on this show before, Chris LeBron, but now I get to return a favor because this this kind gentleman has had me on his show multiple times to discuss NBA draft and or other basketball topics and I reached out to him after our most recent show. I wanted to have him on to do one of these division draft grade segments. And he wanted to be on to talk about the Northwest Division because of the Oklahoma City Thunder. So I'm excited to get into this. They were definitely the most interesting team that we're going to be talking about today. But um, Stephen Gillespie, Stephen, how are you doing, my friend? Welcome to the show. Man, Nathan, it's awesome to be on Draft Deeper. You know, my first go around. Hopefully, I do you proud, Kevin. It was nice to meet you before we got going. Um, but yeah, Nathan, I'm excited. You know, had you on the show that I co-host, Breaking the Game. Did a did a tremendous job as you always do of giving me, you know, the who's the flavor of the draft. You know, who's kind of guys to watch out for. And now Chris and I. It's funny you mentioned him. We just launched Draft Capital, which is our new. NBA draft show that we're going to be co-hosting and it's launching this season. So excited about that and excited about talking to you about this recent draft class, man. Absolutely. You you beat me to the punch, man, because I was going to ask you to plug not only what, what you've been doing with breaking the game, because my audience should certainly pay attention to everything that's going on at the Off the Ball Network, but why don't you also give us the scoop on this new draft show that you guys started? And I know that you have a social media account for it already. Where can my audience follow and, and find all of your work that you're in right now man oh man so first off shout out to the off the ball network you can follow that on twitter at otb underscore network you can follow it on facebook and instagram as well at off the ball network i'm the director of daily operations over there uh, i co-host the nba uh centered podcast with with my good buddy kenneth cotterell uh, it's called breaking the game you can follow that anywhere at btg nba pod that's also on anywhere podcasts are available. Just look up Breaking the Game. You'll see some cool little, you know, headphones and a basketball goal on there that'll let you know that you're in the right spot. And then, yeah, just Draft Capital NBA anywhere that, you know, social media accounts exist. And we're in the crawling stages right now of getting it set up to the different, you know, uh, streaming platforms and services, things like that. So, you know, getting hitting it from the from the roots up right now. Yeah, now I, I guess I will be having Chris on for sure to do another one of these draft grade segments. But after that, Stephen, I'm going to have to have the both of you on my podcast at this point. We're, we're going to have to get a tandem going because I'm definitely excited that you guys are starting your own show about the NBA draft. It's always nice to have different kinds of content out there, different people speaking about evaluating prospects, scouting, the whole nine yards. So I can't wait to, to listen to you guys when that's definitely started up. But without further ado... Let's let's hop into these division grades. So we're doing the Northwest Division today, like I said. So that would comprise of four teams who did actually make selections one way or another, be it they made those selections themselves or they ended up receiving picks via trade um, of selections that, that another team technically made for them. Uh, the Minnesota Timberwolves are technically the fifth team in this division. They did not make a draft selection this year. Maybe we'll hit on them quickly towards the end because they have at least one guy who I got to see out at Summer League who was um, an undrafted free agent signing for them at McKinley Wright. But So the Oklahoma City Thunder will lead us off. Then we'll go through the Denver Nuggets, 
the Utah Jazz and the Portland Trailblazers, the Thunder being the most interesting team here, Stephen, because they made four selections total, or they have four draft picks that were that were made by selection. And then the Nuggets, Jazz, and Blazers only found themselves coming away with one draft pick apiece. So not quite as interesting once we break away from OKC, but obviously we're going to start at the top because the Thunder did have number six overall pick number 18 overall pick and then they ended up making two second round selections as well because their number 16th pick was involved in a trade on draft night that ended up being Alper and Shengun who went to Houston Rockets which I would have loved for for Shengun to be in the fold for Oklahoma City I I was on multiple podcasts before the draft saying that I thought that he would have been a perfect fit and and if they would have had the balls to take him at six I would have absolutely applauded. I thought that he was that special of a talent. But nonetheless, they did not take Mr. Shengu, but they did take an international target in Josh Giddy coming over from the Australia's NBL. And then at 18, they selected Trey Mann. And then at 32, they have Jeremiah Robinson Earl. And at 55, Aaron Wiggins out of Maryland. So that's an interesting collection of talent. Uh, in my opinion, that that's four guys in total. Two of them I had as tier three prospects, which again, for my audience, in case you would need a refresher listening out there, that means that I'm projecting anyone in a tier three as a potential one through four starter on a really good, the championship level team down the road. So essentially what that means is I see you as a definite starting level contributor one way or another, if not right away in your career, at least at some point in your career. And then tier five would kind of be my, my group after the spot starters, the specialists, the six men. These are guys who I would peg as like seventh through ninth men um, in, in a rotation on, on a really good, the potentially championship level team. So I don't see them as starting caliber players. I don't necessarily see them as spot stars, but they're guys that can definitely play a role and certainly have an impact for w- w- whatever length of minutes or whatever length of time that a coach would see fit for them to be out on the floor. You can mix them in with starters. They're guys who, like I said, th- their impact will definitely be felt. They know how to play the game of basketball, and these two guys are actually experienced players. They weren't college seniors, but they were returning college players in Robinson Earl as well as Aaron Wiggins. So, like I said, really, really unique group of draft picks. I think guys who all four of them, Stephen, and, and I'll get your thoughts in a second, I think all four of them have a chance to be with the Oklahoma City Thunder, not just in the short term, but but also for the long term as well. I think Jeremiah Robinson Earl and Aaron Wiggins are two guys who, as long as they play up to their potential and contribute regularly, they, they can earn potentially a second contract down the road with the Oklahoma City Thunder. So we're going to give our grades first. So Stephen, how would you grade the Oklahoma City Thunders draft this past year? Well, so when I look at the grades, just to let you know right up front, Nathan, uh, I looked at, you know, how the how it fit the team too, right? So whenever I, I have team needs, biggest needs for each team here that we're going to be breaking down, and the biggest need that the Oklahoma City Thunder had, in my opinion, were just NBA players, right? Like not to just be rude <laughs> or anything, but they just needed some, they needed some grown NBA players. Uh, factoring that in, the, the picks that they had in contrast with, you know, where I had guys on my big board. I gave Oklahoma City a, a strong B plus trading away Alper and Shangoon for more draft picks, in my opinion, was a little bit of a, a negative on their end. And but the, I like what they did in the second round, you know, trading two first round picks for one. And then, you you know, you walked away with Jeremiah Robinson Earl, a guy who I had 12th overall on my board. Uh, you know, I like Trey Mann. I had him 14th. 
And then looking at Aaron Wiggins, you know, he was right outside my top 60. He was at 62. But when you get in the second round that late in the in the second round, you just kind of take the guy you like. I'm not going to knock him too much. But overall, I, I gave him a strong B+. So my grade for the Oklahoma City Thunder at this point in time, again, having the time myself to really dig through what I thought about these guys, again, factoring in not only the value that they got at each pick, in my opinion, but also, Steven, to your point, fit and, and the context of the draft picks themselves. I give them a solid B. I, I think the, the giddy pick, and I'll get your thoughts on that mm-hmm. in a second, I think the giddy pick was a little bit of a reach for me. Josh Giddy's somebody who I don't necessarily see him as a starting point guard, somebody who deserves to have the ball in his hands from a lead guard perspective. I think he's much more comfortable being a secondary creator, someone who starts off the ball, maybe somebody who, you know, is involved in like a dribble handoff action and he he gets the ball swung around to him in some form or fashion, sort of like your your Joe Ingles type of player. And and that's the point where he starts making an impact on offense. But then again, maybe at some points you do technically want the ball in his hands because he's not the the amazing shooter that Joe Ingles is. When 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 people make that comp and when I've made that comp, that's something that has even slipped my mind because Joe Ingles is a 40-plus percent three-point shooter. He's proven that he's that good in his career. Giddy is not close to that, and he's not going to be providing the same value shooting the basketball Um, just quite yet. And and it's been something that I've also questioned his NBA fit from day one. How is he going to score the basketball? He's a smart player. He's an intelligent player. I've said on multiple podcasts, again, reacting to the fact of the Oklahoma City Thunder draft that they at least get a player who belongs in the NBA. To your point, Stephen, he's going to move the ball, help that offense flow. It's not just going to stick in his hands and, and Giddy's going to make a bunch of terrible decisions with the basketball. At the very least, if he doesn't some, see something developing for himself, he's going to keep him moving. So I like the fit in, in that aspect. But D, what's what was your evaluation of Josh Giddy Steven coming coming into this and then through the whole pre-draft process? Do you see him as a point guard, somebody who they can really put the ball in his hands a lot next to somebody like Shea? Or do you think that in time he's going to be more of a 3-4, 4-3 type of player who you see being used more of as a wing and then maybe in some of those like secondary actions? You can, you can see him creating for others, not necessarily bringing the ball up the floor. Yeah, so I left him off my initial analysis on purpose because I felt like this is where we're going to be spending the majority of our time when we're talking about the Thunder, <laughs> right? So I wasn't a big giddy guy. You know, I had him 15th on my board. I had him mocked on my mock draft to New Orleans at 17th, which I thought would be a fun, interesting fit for that team. But looking at him in Oklahoma City, it's pretty curious because we saw that Oklahoma City was willing to shop around SGA before the draft even took place. So that kind of tipped their hand a little bit that they were going to be going after some of these kind of ball handler guys, you know, including Trey Mann. JRE is not necessarily like a a primary ball handler, but in spurts, he can be your secondary or tertiary playmaking option. Giddy, though, he strikes me as a guy that if the ball's out of his hands, I don't know what he does really at an NBA level. You know, he's not a plus athlete. He's not a defender. He's not a great shooter. None of the metrics or the numbers support that he is even going to be like an above average shooter in today's NBA. His height is really what he has going for him, which allows him to make plays that, you know, kind of smaller, you know, initiators aren't going to be able to do. So 
if you take the ball out of SGA's hands, who quite frankly is the only thing that Oklahoma City has going for them, and you're putting it in Giddy's hand, you're you're lessening your the the impact of your best player in order to boost the guy that you probably reached for. Because let's face it, Oklahoma City is not looking to compete anyway, so they could have taken really anybody at six. You know, we we beat up the Spurs for taking Primo at twelve, right? But taking Giddy at six, I think, was just as flagrant. But he's he's just a more popular name, really. So I'm looking at him at 15th on my board. I'm looking at where Oklahoma City took him. They're going to have to kind of finesse the offense around him. We didn't really even get to see that much of a look at him at Summer League either. Nate, I know I know that you were there, so you saw the, really the lack thereof that was, you know, Josh <laughs> Giddy in the Summer League. So it's pretty curious on what they're going to do moving forward because we don't even have a foreshadowing of it. The only play that he had... It was in that very first game where he had that highlight dunk that was purely off of a defensive miscue. I I don't want to hear anybody say that that was that was a, a highlight for Giddy in terms of what you can expect from him from day one in the NBA. He had a free lane to the basket, something that exactly. again was miscommunication by the defense should have never happened. So yeah, we taking that into account, we literally have no summer league evidence in terms of how Giddy is going to not only fit with some of those other guys around him, but also what the Oklahoma City Thunder truly want to do with him and how they want to develop him. Again, the ball was in his hands on that very first play. Um, he was going to be the point guard of that possession, was the point guard of that possession, but it's not a, it's not even a full game sample size. And everyone talks about how much summer league may or may not matter. I, I think it does matter. Just not, not to a great extent, but there are absolutely things that you can take away from summer league performances. You can tell how a certain player is meshing with the coaching staff, with other players on the team. There, there, there are things that you can take away, but yeah, we have literally no evidence of that. Um, talking about, not only Giddy's fit with the Thunder, but I think just his overall projection, Stephen. Obviously, the Oklahoma City Thunder have to see something in him to take him with the number six overall pick. When you're making a pick in the top 10, there, there comes a point where you kind of have to star hunt until there are literally no stars, in your opinion, left off the board. And when, when you're picking with like a top six, top seven, top eight pick, generally, you're trying to shoot for the best combination of upside as well as what a player could offer for within his first year, even his first two years in the league. So that would tell me that they think that Giddy's ready to step in with their team. They see a role that he can have even in his rookie year. And that they also think that he might potentially be able to blossom into a star. And I've already gotten a little bit of your take in terms of what you might see or what what you don't think is going to be there from day one but on the other side if we're just purely projecting out Stephen, do you see any sort of star potential with, with giddy that others have talked about or do you think that we're we, we would be setting the bar way too high given the expectations we should have for him in your opinion so i'll tell you that i think the expectations are too high you know when i when i'm looking at giddy Again, the size and, and the vision really is what you're looking at. And you could say, well, wait, Stephen, what happened about LaMelo Ball last year? You know, he didn't have the, the great shooting numbers. He wasn't the most fleet of foot. He didn't look like he he popped, you know, extremely off the charts, like, say, a, a Jalen Green in, in the G League this year, right? So there's there was that whole conversation about, well, Giddy could just do what LaMelo Ball did. I think that 
LaMelo Ball is a little bit more lightning in the bottle than, than Josh Giddy because he has a he has a better handle in my opinion, right? He he profile he has a shooting profile that fits more of today's NBA, where Giddy just he's not going to be a bad player, right? I just think that drafting sixth, Oklahoma City they're in a they're in an interesting spot to me, Nathan, because they can swing for more of a fence than anybody else in today's NBA. You know they're not looking to compete anytime soon. I just think that Sam Presti is kind of looking to do what he did in his first go round drafting three MVPs and they have multiple picks that they can just kind of strike for the high ceiling guys as many times as they want and hope eventually that one of them sticks though. is a little bit of a reach, but what I do like, you know, the size and the vision that that's, that's certainly the things that he has going for him in a positive light. Maybe they can turn the shooting around because if they do shooting and passing offset each other perfectly in today's NBA, right? You have to, you have to account for both. And if Giddy can get those shooting numbers up, that opens his game and other players around him, it opens them up tremendously. Well, somebody who we know was profiled to definitely be an outside shooter coming into this draft was Trey Mann, a point guard who they did select at number 18 overall. And I had the chance to see a little bit of him at Summer League, and, and I was not impressed not not to completely rain on his parade, but a lot of the negatives with Trey Mann that I outlined before the draft even happened sort of bore themselves out in terms of the playmaking, right? Like when we talk about how good of a passer and a playmaker that Trey Mann can be, a lot of what he did in college at Florida was out of design pick and roll sets. And when he has to make decisions outside of those sets, the results generally don't tend to be overly positive. And I think we saw some of that at Summer League. The, obviously, the Oklahoma City Thunder, I don't think they expected to put the ball in his hands as much in some of those situations as they ultimately had to because of the giddy injury. But nonetheless, we had a little bit of a sample size there, and, and the results weren't overly encouraging to me. And, and this is an interesting series. It's funny that I'm doing more of these draft grades after we have some of the summer league tape. I think that's actually a really interesting aspect to sort of throw into this. But how you, you said he was 14th on your board, Stephen. How do you feel about Trey Mann's potential fit with Oklahoma City in terms of does it line up with um, you maybe thinking that Giddy might be better not as the point guard, but maybe more as like a three, four, more of like a wing. And then maybe one day Trey Mann is that other guard next to Shea because they can maybe complement each other better. Or do you think that maybe a reason why he slipped to 18 is because teams shared some of my opinion that maybe he is just a backup point guard in the NBA. And if you have two guys like Giddy and Shea initiating offense within the starting lineup, Maybe it's it's just another guy like Trey Mann to be able to have to come off the bench to spell either of those guys for minutes. And, and really, you see his, his outcome as more of a, a safer bet as a backup versus a starter. So I think initially coming into the NBA, Nathan, is that he's going to probably come in and run the second unit, which I think is a great role for him, just getting his feet wet in the NBA. I mean, you're talking about a kid who put up 15.6 rebounds, almost four assists a game, over is still a game. 40% from deep, those free throw numbers indicate that that shooting is for real, in my opinion, right? I know a lot of people, there's a debate, right, between the free throw lines correlating causation between the three-point numbers, right? So that's there. I think that it's for real. I love his athleticism. I love his, you know, his, his bag, I think, is deeper than what we saw in Florida. It's just going to be 
in a position to where I think that he's going to be in a more free flowing system in Oklahoma city, vice what he did in Florida. Right. So it's one of those things to where I think the athleticism is there. I think he can get play the one and the two playing alongside SGA. I think is going to open him up a little bit more. He's not going to be in a situation where he has to make every single decision, which helps, you know, a 19 year old kid coming into the NBA to make decisions. Yeah, I mean, he took in in the two games that he ended up appearing in out in Las Vegas, he took 14 and a half shots per game. So 29 shots total, and he only made seven of them. So that may be part of what, what you were alluding to, Stephen, which is if you if you put him in a position where he has to make too many things happen, right? He doesn't have more of a design role. He can be a little bit overwhelmed given not only having to adjust to the NBA game, but also adjust to um, making everybody else around him better, making the right plays at the right time. If you put too much responsibility on his shoulders, maybe he crumbles a little bit. And that was that, that, that's what the numbers say in, in the two games that he played in. It might have been a little too much too soon for him. He might have to, to come along a little more slowly than we initially anticipated or some might have initially anticipated. I, for one, I think he's going to be a much better pick as a backup point guard long term. And honestly, that's fine because – Given what, some of the things that you talked about, the deep range on his jump shot, the, the fact that he does have one of the stronger handles in this draft class, he can create for himself when given the opportunity. If he's like that spark plug type of point guard who can play make out of those designed pick and roll sets, set somebody else up for a good shot. If he learns more of the smaller nuances within the pick and roll landscape, then maybe that is a really interesting spot for him to be in and something that the Oklahoma City Thunder it's interesting. I don't think they have a backup point guard that speaks to what his profile could eventually be, which is this like spark plug, deep shooting threat, somebody who can much better play make out of pick and roll. Like they have Teo Maladon and, and Teo Maladon played mm -hmm. pretty well for the Thunder actually last year in, in different spurts. And he he earned his way to, to a starting spot, played really good minutes for them. Um, it, it's interesting who who do you think is probably the better bet to be a backup point guard for Oklahoma City long term? Is it Trey Mann? Are you still that high on him? Or, or do you think that it's going to be tough for Trey to kind of bump Teo Maladon out of some of those minutes as a backup? Well, I think initially it's going to be more difficult for him because Teo, like you just mentioned, Nathan, is that he's established a trust, trust within the organization. But I think long term, Trey has a higher ceiling. And he has a more electric game, you know, is more, yep. more, more flash. He can create more for others and for himself. Uh, he takes pretty decent care of the ball too, which is something that you can't overlook at that backup point guard position. You want to make sure that that second unit, that good decisions are being made. So Oklahoma city actually has quite a good luxury. When you look at Teo and Trey are going to be coming off the bench, but long-term, I just think that the, the athleticism, the bag, the deep range on his shot, you know, the shooting mechanics, you know, can be cleaned up a little bit, but it's nothing that you look at and you say, oh, okay, you know, we're worried about what this guy's going to be long-term. He's going to be a good shooter as he continues to develop in the NBA, get a little bit stronger, but I think for the most part, he's got an NBA ready body. So Trey, Trey, man, I think long-term will be the, the better solution, but he's in a good situation where that development doesn't have to get rushed. And then he has to potentially deal with, you know, the mental hurt, hurdles of the NBA. You know, am I ready to do this? You know, does the team believe in me? Does the team trust me? Do my teammates believe that I can, you know, when I'm shooting the ball, 
that it's not going to be a waste of time for them, you know, to be running these sets. And and that's a big thing for a point guard to have to deal with. I agree. And I think that the, despite some of the struggles that I outlined from, again, the very small sample size that we have from, from Vegas Summer League, we cannot completely ignore the fact that this was somebody who in his second year in Florida, he shot 46% from the field, 40% from three, 83% from the free throw line. Those percentages more than check out, especially given the volume and the level of responsibility from a scoring perspective that was in Trey Mann's hands at, at different points throughout that Florida season, especially late in the shot clock. He was generally the guy who had to take and make a lot of big shots for that team to have some of the success that it did. So yeah, we can't overlook any of Trey Mann's potential, whether it's as a starter, who knows down the road, if it's a, a, a like a high level backup, I think that he will be able to shoot the basketball and, and score one way or another. And he will definitely have an NBA impact, which is why I'm perfectly fine with them taking a shot on him at 18. Maybe he does develop into more of that dynamic type of guard that you outlined, Stephen, over somebody like a Teo Maladon. Let's talk about Jeremiah Robinson Earl. So. I had him, like I said at the top, as a tier five player. You having him at number 12. You're, you're not the only person I know who had him as a first-round grade. Shout out to, to Mavs Draft. He's also yes. a, a friend of the podcast who has always shown Jeremiah Robinson a love whenever he's been able to. So, Stephen, why don't you talk to me about why you rank Jeremiah Robinson Earl number 12 on your board and why you think that given the disparity between draft order and your personal rankings, why the Thunder may have potentially gotten one of the long-term steals of the draft. I mean, am I allowed to say on a draft show that he played at Villanova and we can just leave it at that? Can we, can we leave with that, that he played at Villanova and you know, the rule is you don't bet against those guys, right? I mean, even a guy like Jalen Brunson has shown that he could be a, a good point guard in the NBA. But, uh, you know, jokes aside, you know, I love the fact that he's got size, that you can trust him to run an offense and also to guard the other team's best player. You know, he's got formidable size at his position. He can, he's a little bit of a flex tweener, right? Where he can play three, four, maybe even give you minutes at some small ball five, you know, six, nine, two, thirty. 16 points a game over eight rebounds. I think that in college, you kind of have to prorate assists, right? Like three assists in, in college is really more like six or seven in today's NBA. Whereas if you look at Jeremiah Robinson Earl, his what two assists a game really kind of checks out to about four or five. So the the fact that you can run an offense through a big is in it is a very overlooked, but shouldn't be an undervalued skilled in today's NBA. When you can, when you can run handoff plays and know that this guy is either going to hand the ball off to a slashing guard or a forward, or he can not hand the ball off, put the ball on the ground for a couple of dribbles and either hit a floater or, you know, a, maybe a, a quick little Euro step to the basket and he's going to finish. I mean, you look at his percentages, about 48% from the floor, that three point shooting really isn't there, but I think that that could be fixed. You know, I'm a big guy that you look at the free throws. And that to me is an indicator that he that there is something there for for his shooting, right? Like it may not prorate to like 40 percent, so to speak. But if he can get the number up to about, say, 34 to 36 percent, that makes him a little bit more dangerous in an offense. And he's just going to make good decisions with the ball. I mean, less than two turnovers per game. Super smart, very fundamental. He can guard on the perimeter. He can guard on the post up. There were several times and Nathan, I'm sure you saw this where. He switched out from guarding a big to a guard and really stifled the dribble 
coming towards the basket. So I re- I'm a real believer in his defense, first of all, and I think that defense is still important in today's NBA. But the fact that he's such a sound decision maker that he can hurt you in a multiple ways on the offensive end and he can do it without demanding such a high usage rate, I think that makes him uh, very valuable in the NBA. Yeah, I've had questions and concerns. Obviously, you you mentioned the jump shot. I mean, the numbers have haven't necessarily checked out with him being able to extend his range and connect um, on three-point shots with regularity. But when you're talking about the type of player that he can be inside the arc, I agree. While I'll be limited, he's not going to be an awesome self-creator. He's generally somebody who needs to be set up, whether that's him posting up, somebody gets him the ball in the post. Um, you mentioned some of those handoff actions that he can be involved with near the free throw line. If he's like an elbow type of player, he's catching the ball, getting himself um, ready to contribute on the offensive end from there. He He's generally not doing a ton by himself, which is fine. Again, we're talking about the 32nd pick in the draft. We're talking about somebody who I didn't have as like a tier one through three, like a guaranteed starter in my opinion. So yeah, that's perfectly fine. And And not to bury the kid, I mean, just just some positives that we can look at. I mean, he was in the 90th percentile in terms of putbacks. He mm-hmm. was in the 88th percentile around the basket, shooting about 68% around the basket. He was in the 90th percentile on what Synergy would classify as medium range shots. He shot 52.1% on those looks. So maybe he's not stretching the defense all the way out to three, but if he's involved in some pick and pop actions inside of the arc, those are shots that that he can knock down. And even if he even if they do, like you said, Steven, some of those fake dribble handoff actions where he turn and face to the basket, if a defender's not crowding up on him, forcing him to put the ball on the floor, those are shots that he proved to Villanova that that he can hit with some form of comfort level. So I agree. It's not like it's not like Jeremiah Robinson Earl isn't going to be a productive player in the NBA. I just didn't know how high that I personally wanted to draft that player but yeah if you take into account the fact that he does have enough areas where he can contribute in he's always been a good rebounder the defense albeit i don't think he's the quickest footed player to consistently get involved in some of those switches like you want like the nba level he has an understanding of where he needs to position himself in order to make an impact on that and that level of iq obviously he developed at villanova Um, Jay Wright's one of the better defensive teachers that we have in the country at the collegiate level. So just the the trust, the level of trust that you get from having somebody like Jeremiah Robinson Earl on your roster. That's why I think he is a surefire, somebody you can definitely bring off the bench. Maybe he can start for you in certain pinches. Who knows? Maybe, maybe he does develop into a starting level player. I think that if that were to happen, I think the jump shot would have to come around from three-point range. He has to be able to reliably stretch the floor. He needs to be a much more consistent threat off of the catch. He only rated out in the 37th percentile on catch-and-shoot looks and in the 46th percentile on jump shots overall. That has to be more of a consistent weapon for him. Do you think that there's a path, Stephen, for him to potentially become a starter for, for Oklahoma City? Or do you think that at least right now in his first few years in the league for this team, he is much better suited just, just coming off of the bench and everybody kind of understands that's what his role is going to be? Well, I think that he could definitely grow into a starter because coaches aren't going to start guys that they can't trust to go out there and do the right thing. I mean, let's consider some of the guys in the NBA's history 
who have started. They're not necessarily your all-star guys, but they're guys that you can put out there who can defend and who can make the right read. And just to talk to his offense a little bit more, I have Synergy called up here. I mean, his spot up, he rates out as very good, 79th percentile. You did a good job, Nate, of outlining exactly where on the floor that that ranks out. But and, and on the defensive end, I think that that's where he's going to really make his money. I think that, you know, in isolations, he grades out in the 88th percentile that that grades out to for people who, who don't know what that means. That's excellent. Right. So and then post up is good. His switchability is really what's going to sell him in today's NBA. And again, those free throw numbers, I think that there's something there to his shot. If he can live anywhere from that 34 to 36 percentage from, from deep, I mean, you're looking at a guy who potentially could be more of like a Boris Diaw in today's NBA who did his fair fair share of starting, did his fair share of stretching the floor and, and defending, and you could trust him in a pick-and-roll situation to make the correct read. So Boris Diaw is kind of the mold that I'm envisioning when I look at a Jeremiah Robinson Earl, and that was a very good long career NBA player. The last guy that they drafted was Aaron Wiggins. And I don't necessarily have a ton to say on Aaron Wiggins from a value perspective where they got him. We're talking about a back end second round pick. Like you said, Steven, at some point we, we can nitpick, but we probably shouldn't be nitpicking. It's, it's the back end of the second round. However, I am surprised that he didn't go any earlier because of his combine performance. He was actually consistent at the NBA draft combine and really consistency is the biggest problem to his game because there would be times at Maryland where he would flash um, awesome ability on both ends of the floor to where you're looking at him just given his size. You can kind of picture him as an NBA wing. And then there's other games where he doesn't put it all together. He's not shooting well from the field. Um, he has some of those bad shooting nights where the, those are what really drags his percentages down. And you look at him and you go, well, if he's not playing with consistent effort and consistent motor and his shot's not falling, what type of player are you really getting? And it seems like just given where he was drafted, NBA teams lean more towards the the, the latter projection than the former. But listen, I, and I'll let you talk about any thoughts that you might have on him, Stephen, but Aaron Wiggins played pretty well for Oklahoma City and Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, and I understand that that's a setting that caters more towards shot-making wings and also players who just have more experience in general, just given um, all the, the the discombobulation that comes on, that comes along with getting the summer league, not having many practices to be familiar with your new teammates and your new coaching staff. You're kind of just thrown into the fire and they're really seeing how much you can handle. It's almost like I, I love watching a show like Bar Rescue where when, when John Taffer does like the stress test to kind mm -hmm. of figure out where a lot of the weaknesses are on, on those staffs on the show. And it's it's really like the same thing. Summer League is like one giant stress test. You see some of these guys, maybe if they're coming back to a second year or they're like highly prized rookies, that these coaches are putting the ball in their hands and seeing how much responsibility they can handle before they crack. And Aaron Wiggins, while he is a rookie, he was also um, a junior at Maryland. So it's not like he's coming in as a freshman. He only has one year of collegiate playing experience, and then he's coming in fresh to summer league. He's technically one of those quote unquote older guys who in theory is supposed to do well in summer league, but it is encouraging. Not every one of those guys or types of players always has good summer league results that we can point to and say, ah, he did this. He did these things in Vegas. This is what I can expect from him in a rookie year. So um, any thoughts that you want to throw out there about Aaron Wiggins, the potential value that Oklahoma city got with that pick, Steven? 
I mean, I don't think that it's going to be one of those things that we look back on and say, oh my goodness, how did everyone pass up on Aaron Wiggins? But I do think that, you know, me, I had him graded out 62nd on my board. He was taken 55th. Again, I'm not going to, I'm not going to beat up a team for a seven, seven spot difference at the back end of a second round. You know, it's just kind of to each their own at that moment. But, you know, he, He's got good size. You know, he's not a bad shooter, just not really like a, a terrific shooter either. He's just he's just strikes me as one of those guys that he's going to come on this team and kind of be about their their average age already. So he kind of fits in a little bit, so to speak, there. And just the fact that he can slash, I think that gives this team a little bit more of a dynamic where, you know, you have some guys who who have slashing ability on this team, like your Lou Dortz or your Darius Baisley's, but you you got to have a little bit of versatility in your locker room, and I think that that's what he gives you. You know, like I said, good size, about six 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 seven, just depending on who's measuring him that day. Two hundred pounds, kind of bouncy. You know, can can rebound a little bit, can pass a little bit. His his defense isn't too terrible either, so he just seems kind of like a safe player. You know, I mean, in the back end of the second round, taking a guy like Aaron Wiggins is par for the course, in my opinion. So I'm not going to beat them up too much here for that seven that seven spot difference but i mean there there's logic behind why oklahoma city took him there but i don't think that's going to be something nate that we look back on and we're going to be like oh my goodness like everyone pass up on aaron wiggins well as we move past the oklahoma city thunder man it, it, it sounds like they definitely earned that b plus grade that you gave them because your biggest thing was that you just wanted them to take NBA players, guys who they could have some sort of trust in what one way or another, whether that's off the bench or potentially sliding into the starting unit. And, and yeah, in both of our opinions, they got four NBA caliber players. It's just a matter of what else do they do with this roster and who's going to be where within three to four years time. But yeah, they, they definitely had a very solid Draft. So any Oklahoma City Thunder fans out there listening to this podcast, even though I didn't give you an A, I still gave you a solid B. Steven gave you a B plus. That's thumbs I'm up. I'm closer to the A. So, you know, all you Oklahoma <laughs> City fans, you know, what's up? Show me some love. Yeah, yeah go go give Steven a follow on Twitter. Um, but, but moving past the Thunder, we then get to the Denver Nuggets, who had a selection in number 26. They picked... Nashawn Bones Highland Mm-mm. out of VCU. Um, that was that was an interesting pick. I think it's interesting because of the Jamal Murray injury. He's not going to play much, if at all, any next season. And you have somebody like Bones Highland, who it's not like he's going to slide into the starting lineup or, or anything like that. But when you bring somebody like him off the bench, when you're staggering that starting lineup and you're having Bones share the floor with somebody like Jokic, you can run a lot of the same op- uh, actions with, with Highland that, that you can with, with Jamal Murray. Not that Bones is going to execute them to any higher level than, than Jamal Murray can, but at the very least, like those are things that Bones can do that, that he can be very comfortable with. Shooting off of screens, operating out of um, dribble handoff actions, playing in pick and roll. Like These are things that he can do, and he can also stretch the defense and be sort of that type of shooting guard that Jamal Murray is a lot of times for that offense. So really, not only can Bones Highland be a contributor to that team in the long term, but I think in the short term, he takes away some of the loss and some of the pain that is not having Jamal Murray for the entire length of the season next year. And, and competing in the Western Conference, Stephen, you you know this. You, you want to have 
good position and good seating when it comes to the playoffs. So I don't think that Denver wants to necessarily fall off in any way, shape, or form. They want to establish and, and stay within one of those top four seeds so that, that, that they can at very least have home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs. So just given the pick of Nashawn Bones Highland, I like Bones as a player. I had him as a tier four guy. So somebody who I see more of as like a specialist or like a sixth man because of his shooting ability. I'm not sold on him being a long-term starter at the point guard position. But when we talk about spark plug type players, we saw Emmanuel quickly have awesome success last year for the New York Knicks. He's probably going to take a step in his second year and be their top contributor off the bench, along with whatever happens with Obi Toppin. I'm assuming that Obi's probably going to be coming off the bench as well, but I could see Bones Highland having a similar level of impact that IQ did last year for New York. And that's something De Denver just needs as much offense as they can scrounge together to, to limit what that Jamal Murray blow does for that team. So I will give, I will give this pick a, another solid B I don't want to give it an A. I don't want to give out a million A's in terms of draft grades, but I'll give it. I'll give it another solid B. What do you think, Stephen? Well, I'll do what you're unwilling to do, Nathan. I'll give them an A. I think that they nailed this. I had him 18th on my board. It's funny that you keep bringing up Emmanuel quickly because I was big on him last year too. But for for Nishan, I mean, six three needs to put on a little bit of strength. I think, you know, 165, he probably needs to bulk up, and I don't imagine that he won't be able to do that in Denver. But, I mean, my goodness, what a dynamic score. You know, almost 20 points a game, almost five boards. I said that the assists need to be prorated for from the college level to the pros. So his little around two assists per game is probably going to check out to be about four or five. 37% um, from deep on a difficult profile. It's not like this guy was just, you know, spot up and shooting with no one around him. I mean, if you go back and look at any of Highland's highlights, he, he has he has some cojones on him, man. He is not afraid yep. to take a big shot. And that's, that swag, I think, is something that, that Denver needs. Because when I was looking at some of their biggest needs, shot creator was number one. Wing defender yep. was number two. And then front court rotation was number three. They nailed the shot creator. I mean, you look at and, and Nathan, I would love to hear your takes on just watching him live because when I watch him on the film, he pops. But in the summer league, 16 points, 15 points, 28 points, 20 points, you know, rebounding and assisting. He has the confidence. He he seems like he's going to be one of these guys that Denver just loves. He's going to be able to come in and play in a system, but he's going to hold other people accountable, even at a young age. And something about coming up out of Virginia Commonwealth, that's not really like an NBA player factory, but some notable players have come out through that way. And the ones that have made it, they're tough-minded individuals, man. So I think that Bones is going to keep that, that tradition alive coming out of VCU. You know, again, I had him 18th on my board. I had him mocked to LA at 22, which I think would have been a, a, a great selection for him from the Lakers, but they had to go mess up and get a uh, Russell Westbrook. Ha ha. Whatever. <laughs> that's I, I think, I think they're going to be fine with Russell Westbrook, but, um, nation, he gets an A for me, especially not only with what they needed as far as the type of player they needed, but he just, he's not going to get the Jamal Murray minutes. We're just going to go ahead and get that out of the way. Cause Mike Malone yep. is not like a super friendly to rookie head coach. I think he still coaches Michael Porter jr. Like he's in his rookie year. So, I know that he's not going to get the lion's share of the minutes because they have Monte Morris too, who is a tremendous backup in a pinch. You put him in as a starting guard, but I think that Nashon could come in here and give you super valuable minutes coming off the bench as that spark plug that you laid out, Nathan. 
I think that they absolutely nailed the draft with their one selection they had. Yeah, the you asked me about what my thoughts were um, seeing him in person, and and the biggest takeaway for me just watching him. I mean, we can go over the percentages. We can go over where he rated out in some synergy profiles. Most impressive number probably being he was in the 96th percentile in terms of spot outs overall. Mm -hmm. the, the, the biggest thing that stands out is that competitive fire that he plays with. It seems like every time he he's either having some sort of impact on the defensive end or he's hitting a tough shot, like he, he's, he's one of those guys, he, he's going to be very vocal. He's going to let you know he did something good. He's going to pound his chest. He is that level of energetic contributor. And, and obviously that stands out in a live setting necessarily more so than on TV. So I think that for, for what you said, that, that Mike Malone is necessarily the most trusting coach when it comes to giving younger guys minutes at the same time, he seems like a very Mike Malone type of player because Mike Malone is an intense coach. He's mm -hmm. somebody who prides his teams more so, at least he, he tries to pride his teams more so on the defensive end. And while Nashawn Highland isn't going to set the world on fire in terms of defense. He's still rated out in the 65th percentile defensively last year. Yeah, exactly. He's capable. He's competitive. He tries. And when, when you look at what his makeup is physically as a guard, yeah, he's going to have to still keep improving his body. But the fact that he didn't necessarily let that be a major hindrance to his defensive impact. He, he was competitive at the point of attack. That's really all you can expect from a point guard in the NBA at the end of the day. Not a lot of these point guards are going to be all world-class defenders, but that's, that, that's not always what they're on the floor to do. They're, they're on the floor primarily to have an offensive impact first and foremost. And even though I, I'm not going to write anything crazy home about um, his ability to make plays for others or his passing chops, you know that he's going to be ready and willing to take and make some big shots when he's on the floor. So from that aspect, yeah, I think Denver definitely got somebody who can help their team in the short term, whether Mike Malone gives him enough leash or not. And then in the long term, I do think that he could potentially grow into a special type of shot maker. Um, he, he's a very, very interesting prospect. To, to keep an eye on and, and I'll be rooting for him in, in Denver. I like the kid a lot. His combine interview with Mike Schmitz, where you could just tell he's just one of those kids. He's a gym rat. He just loves to play mm -hmm. basketball. You always want to root for those kids. So absolutely. absolutely. So let's move to the Utah Jazz, who mm -hmm. listen, I wouldn't I, I would never say that he's the best player in this draft, but he was probably you you know Steven, you know how much I liked him. He's probably my favorite player. Oh, in yeah. this entire draft class, that would be Mr. Jared Butler. Utah ended up swinging him at pick number 40. That pick was involved in a trade, but they ended up getting the the, the rights to him. And, and he will be on that team. The medical concerns at this point seem to be okay. He was definitely cleared to play by the NBA's uh, play committee, so he's going to be okay. I I don't know what Utah has in store for him exactly and and when he's definitely going to see enough playing time on the floor. But if everything does clear out, if they're perfectly comfortable with, with handing him the, the the keys to some sort of role offensively, listen, I, I loved him in college. I think he's going to be a dynamic NBA guard. He was somebody who I mocked all the way as high as number seven 
Mm -hmm. to, to Golden State when I did my GM style mock draft because when you looked at some of the needs that the Warriors have, um, they 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 need guys who can step in and can be trusted to hit shots out of the most simple sets and also be able to keep that ball moving within a lot of their motion type offense and. Listen, they 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 definitely drafted for upside. They took Kuminga and they took Moses Moody. Not to make this podcast all about the Warriors draft grades, <laughs> but I, I I looked at Jared Butler as somebody who like if Steph and Clay and and Draymond if they need to move the ball and kick it to the corner, they're not going to be looking over there with disgust like they did at times last year with like Andrew Wiggins and Kelly Oubre if they're kicking the ball over to somebody like Jared Butler. He you can trust him to make those shots and. It, it's funny, all Utah seems to do is just get really good freaking basketball players, man. Yep. They, they have one of the best front offices in the NBA. They've had one of the best front offices for years and years and years. They're great at drafting players. They, they had to be because they took Rudy Gobert towards the back end of the first round. They took Donovan Mitchell, where they did somebody who's proven like in any sort of redraft for that year. He's definitely going top five, if not even higher than that. Mm. Um, they, they've done an excellent job at evaluating and, and mining talent where they were able to and, and getting a player like Jared Butler, who I had amongst my surefire, like 21 best players in this draft class. If you just sort everybody by the tiers, tiers one through three guaranteed starters for me, that was about 21 guys. The fact that I had him in that group so comfortably and if he's healthy, they got him at pick 40. That is massive, massive, massive value. So I'm going to absolutely give this pick an A. You knew I was going to give this pick an A. but And I had a tweet. I actually had a tweet that went viral quite literally in the Utah Jazz community. But like that backcourt that Utah has now of, of Conley, Mitchell, Jordan Clarkson, and now Jared Butler, that is one hell of a group of four guards. And, mm -hmm. and I, I, expect, I expect Butler to contribute um, almost immediately when he does get to see minutes on the floor. And they also nab, not that he's necessarily involved in like the draft grades, but they also had Macy OT playing on their summer league team. I would hope that they sign him to a deal. I don't think he signed to a deal as of us recording this podcast, but he also played really well out in Utah. That, that man better have a job as well. But um, what, what grade would you give the Utah Jazz for picking up Jared Butler in the second round? It's funny to me, Nathan, that I'm giving you, but I'm giving them a better grade than you, even though you had him higher on your board than I did. Uh, I had him 22nd on my board. I had him mocked to Atlanta at 20, which I felt would have been a tremendous get for Atlanta. Yep. Not to say that they didn't also have an amazing draft either, right? So uh, I give them an A plus, man. And when I looked at the draft, I, I saw they needed front court depth, wing depth, and then shot creation. I think they addressed their front court and some of their wing play in the free agency. And they nailed the shot creation in the draft here with Jared Butler. I mean, you're talking about a guy who gave you 17 points, three boards, five assists, two steals. You know, he and Mitchell both. The fact that you can add a guy on your team that can give you five assists and two steals a night, that's tremendous. I mean, at the guard position, he can play on or off the ball. And that's one of the things when you look at Baylor, they had that, that three-man rotation at the guard spot to where it's like, okay, which one is going to set up and which one is going to be set up? I, I love that dynamic that they had. And Jared, I think because of him playing at Butler, there's more on-ball creation that he possesses that he didn't really get a chance to show. That was one of the things that I talked about with Emmanuel quickly last season is that there's so many guards, everyone needs to be able to get a little bit of shine on that team if they're going to be at their best. That's what Baylor did last season, and it worked out pretty well for him, I'd say. You know, over 40% from deep, 
you know, the, the health conditions were the big thing, but to me, it's like, okay, you just saw him play <laughs> high level basketball at a winning level, play more games than almost every other team in NCAA basketball. And he seemed to be handling himself. Okay. So I didn't understand necessarily the the health concerns as in depth as some of these, you know, GMs and stuff like that did fact that they did out of the first round and still got a first round level talent adds to the value. You know, they had the 30th pick they traded with Memphis for a handful of seconds. And with one of these seconds, they end up getting a, an almost top 20 talent in my eyes, that's highway robbery. And the fact that he is going to be kind of like the heir apparent to a Mike Conley Jr. on this team where he's going to be able to come in, set up others, be off ball potential with a, you know Donovan Mitchell, who I think is highly underrated in the NBA as well. There's so much that, that, that Quinn Snyder can do with a guy like a Jared Butler. And he's he fits the mold of a Utah Jazz player. He's tough as nails. He's selfless. He can hit threes. He can play defense. That's basically the profile of the Utah Jazz in a nutshell. I think that they knocked it out of the park. Damn it, Steven. You literally read my mind when when you taught when you brought up the fact that he could potentially be the heir apparent to Mike Conley, because that's exactly where I was gonna go for a follow-up question. I'm sorry. It, it, <laughs> no, the, uh, no, I you de- definitely do not need to apologize. You you are a pro podcaster in your own right, man. That's why I know you're a host, because you're literally thinking like a host with some of the comments and some of the connections that we keep making in our conversations here. But in, in talking about Jared Butler, listen, I think that he has star potential as long as everything works out for him from a medical perspective. And what, when I say star potential, you look at what Mike Conley's been, not at the beginning of his career, but more towards the latter half of his career when he's definitely lost a step. He's not quite as quick as, as he once was, but we know that Jared Butler isn't the quickest guard on the court necessarily either. But -hmm. the level of craft that Conley has, the fact that he's made himself into this mainstay outside shooter, the passing chops that he has within pick and roll, his comfort level on the defensive end, creating steals, forcing turnovers, guarding the other team's bet, the other team's point guard with, with definite positive levels of impact. Like, that's that's the type of role I think that Jared Butler could grow into, that kind of mainstay guard next to somebody like a Donovan Mitchell. Is, is, there, is there a better mentor for somebody like Jared Butler coming in than Mike Conley? I mean, really, no. You just look at Mike Conley and where he's at at this stage of his career. He just almost netted $30 million per year, was an all-star by virtue of being on one of the best teams in the Western Conference. But he's so well-respected and liked. He's very intelligent on and off the floor and he's just he's a consummate professional man and and Jared Butler is the exact same way just at the amateur level you see him almost as a Mike Conley now for one thing Mike Conley in his younger days was like a world-class spinner so I'm not trying to pretend that well that that's exactly why when I make that comp we got to talk about like back half of career of of Mike Conley yeah he's never (laughs) we're not calling Jared Butler a world-class athlete but but the thing is is that when you're playing next to a, a freak of nature with Donovan Mitchell you don't have to be that world-class athlete you can be you know just just an average level NBA guard athlete you know and and you're gonna get your looks because of the gravity that Mitchell has on this team not to mention that there's other guys on this team that can set you up too whether it's Joe Ingles or Bogdanovich or even Clarkson to a lesser degree, right? Like he's, he's on there to do one job and that's the score, but every once in a while he'll, he'll throw out a good pass. And with a guy like Butler, not only can he learn from 
from Conley, but he has a legitimate weapon at all times when he's on the floor in Utah. And he has one of the most underrated head coaches in the game in Quinn Snyder, who is if you if there was a level of toughness at NBA head coaching, I, I don't know if I would want to pick a fight with Quinn Snyder. He just looks like he stayed up all night binge drinking, drawing up plays. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if Quinn Snyder is a guy that I want to pick a fight with on the sidelines. And, and when you have a coach and you have a point guard, that marriage is so important. You know, or I shouldn't even say point guard anymore, but the guy who's going to be your primary ball handler, such as what we imagine that Jared Butler is going to be in Utah, that marriage is going to be vitally important. And the trust that the coach and the player are going to have with each other, the the amount of toughness that both of them possess, and their awareness and unselfishness. I, I think Butler is a Utah Jazz dude, just like created in a lab. And it's just, it's awesome but also a shame that he fell all the way as far as he did. But so many teams are going to regret this, Nathan. And I know that you agree with me on that. I agree, man. Jared Butler is going to be a steal. Again, we, we are not doctors. We do not have the same medical information that these NBA teams have. We are going strictly on what our eyes are telling us, both from the numbers, from on-court performance, what we're able to see. Um, as far as off the court character in some of those moments on the court, what type of a leader he is, the communicator, how he rates out in interviews. And for both of us, Steven, he checks all of those boxes and then some. So I think when you factor in every other part of the evaluation outside of those medicals that, again, we don't know about, he is a home run pick at 40, immense value there. It, it's Listen, if it, if it doesn't work out because of medical concerns, I don't think the Jazz are going to be hitting themselves over the head with the pick because it was it was it was the 40th overall pick in terms right of you can't so you can't go wrong there it's yeah, it's almost it, a no-brainer it's it's quite literally like like as close to a free pick that they can make as possible so why not bet on somebody who has the type of pedigree that butler does i agree wholeheartedly the last team that we can talk about before we before we wrap up this podcast maybe with one or two quick thoughts on um McKinley Wright for for the Minnesota Timberwolves but the Portland Trailblazers 43rd overall pick Greg Brown the third now Greg Brown the third was one of the most polarizing prospects coming into this year's collegiate season um this past year's I should say played mm -hmm. at Texas completely up and down year we kind of knew that going in I knew that he wouldn't look the best at Texas at least at the start of the year I was hoping that as we got more into the season, we saw him more in Big 12 play. By that time, I would have thought he had a little more figured out. And at least on the defensive end, there are some positives I can say. He did not fall for um, to the, the whole drawing fouls aspect. He did not bite on as many pump fakes. He was a much more disciplined defender, kept his feet on the ground a lot more. So in, in that aspect, him being active on the defensive end, being a more disciplined defender, I will say those nice things about him. However, on the offensive end, if, if he wasn't running for a highlight dunk, he was pretty much just spotting up from outside the three-point line, and he wanted to just shoot as many jumpers as he could get up. And if he was instructed to do that, fine. If that's a part of his game that he wanted to showcase for NBA teams, fine. But it didn't really work out to great lengths. He didn't 
have much else in his bag offensively. Not somebody who would you want to reliably create shots off the dribble. He's not that level of shot maker. It's like a transition dunk. It's an easy lob or it's he's going to catch the ball from outside the three-point line and you're going to live with the results if he takes that shot. Um, so clearly he's not much of a basketball player. A lot of developmental time needs to go into um, him as a player. However, the Trailblazers don't have their own G League team. And that was one of the most head-scratching draft picks for me. So the Trailblazers are essentially going to be making a draft selection and signing one of these guys to a contract, yet they don't have their own developmental program. So he's likely going to be assigned elsewhere because I cannot, for whatever reason, imagine that Chauncey Billups is playing him any NBA minutes this year to to try and further develop his skills. He's he's going to be somewhere in, in the G League. I think the the most of those guys get assigned to like the Texas Legends. Um I believe that's the program where he would likely end up with somebody can correct me in, in the old Twitter feed when we post the link to this podcast you know if they'll I'd be do wrong about too. that. They, I, I know that they will do it. I, somebody's <laughs> going to tell me where Greg Brown's going to play next year, but it's not going to be for the Portland Trailblazers. He's not, he's not going to make that roster next year. So just just not, not that I hate the pick, not that I would hate taking a swing on Greg Brown because he's one of the top five athletes in this entire draft class. So the jump shot does come around and he buys into doing all the things off the ball. If he definitely studies film, bumps up his IQ in terms of off-ball movement, figuring out where to be on the basketball court. An athlete at his level, I mean, we saw Jalen Johnson for the Atlanta Hawks out mm. in the summer league, and he, listen, I do Absolute not think that steal. guy, I don't think that guy knows what he's doing on the basketball court yet on, on either end, but you saw he was buying into doing the little things on the offensive end out in Vegas, and the the numbers that he put up, just doing, for the most part, the little things, not making any spectacular plays on ball creation, stibble, uh, uh, step back, dribble jumper. Like he wasn't doing a lot of that stuff. He had a few um, nice turnaround jumpers, which was something he showed at, at Duke on the film, but he wasn't doing anything crazy. He was doing a lot of the easy stuff and he was just that much better of an athlete than everybody else he was going up against that when you commit to doing those easy things, you can rack up points in bunches. And I think eventually Greg Brown could get to that level, but it's not going to be anytime soon. Um, I'm going to give it a D just mm. because of the fact that they don't have their, their own G league affiliation. They're not going to be likely monitoring him or working as close with him on a day-to-day -day basis as somebody else who had a G league program right next to them could, for example, like when you talk about the Atlanta Hawks, they, they got a team in college park. That that's so close to where the team is headquartered in Atlanta. Like they're going to be mm -hmm. monitoring Jalen Johnson and or Sharif Cooper very closely. They're going to be right there with his development. I'm not sure how much of that is going to take place with Greg Brown, somebody who we know needs coaching. So I just I'm giving them the D grade because I don't love the fit of where he ended up. Not that I don't like the player in, in a long term situation, but I don't like that fit. Where what, what would you give the grade, Steven? So hopefully I can talk you up a little bit on this, Nathan. Well, first off, I think the fact that they traded into this draft where they didn't originally have a draft pick, I think that immediately gives them up to a C because they weren't going to be players in this draft to begin with. They came into this draft with not even a second round draft pick. They traded a future one in, in a very deep draft class, and they took a swing on a guy who on my big board, I had 36. He was drafted 43rd. So that bumps them up a little bit more. And then when I look at the biggest needs for this team, number one was a wing creator, which 
I don't know if where he was available, how many more of those guys that were left. I'm looking at a guy like maybe Kessler Edwards was a is a guy that I was kind of high on. But from the players that were available to the fact that they didn't have a draft pick to the fact that they addressed one of the biggest team needs in my eyes and they got one of the highest athletes in the class. I gave them a like I gave them a B minus initially. I think I could be talked down to about a C plus, but I think with contextualizing the pick a little bit it makes a little bit of sense now at the same time they do have joseph nurkic who's coming back off of an injury they they got cody zeller who say what you will he's a he's a serviceable rotational big so the fact that they bring in a raw guy who can have a little bit of time to develop who may end up being a steal because he played in texas in a crowded front court and still was able to put up kind of sub 30 percent from deep around 70 to 71 percent from the free throw line so maybe there's a little bit of shooting there i mean in the summer league in one game he shot 33 percent 50 percent 20 percent and you know it, it kind of you know ups and downs just like you characterize his texas run but the spacing at texas isn't really ideally wasn't ideally fit for a um, athletic kind of four or five player when you consider they had kai jones and jericho sims too so I could see where Portland could talk themselves into into a little bit more open system, especially when you have a guy like, you know, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, maybe two, three years down the line, because let's face it, sometimes it takes a little bit of time for big men to gain traction in the NBA. Maybe there's a world where he could develop into an, a nice role man or a lob threat and maybe a little bit more. It just depends on what they're able to do. But you bring up a great point. The fact that they don't have a developmental team is kind of criminal when Seattle is not too far away and they don't have an NBA team. NBA, if you're listening, why don't you at least put a G League team in Seattle? Give give those fans up there something that they can go to because you know that they will go nuts and they'll support anything you put up there. But overall, I don't know if I have it solidified yet and shame on me for not having one. On paper right now, I have a B minus, but Nathan, I think I could be talked down to about a C plus. So you're definitely higher than me one way or another. I mean, to, to the point that you brought up, Stephen, um, I, I will say that you are right in terms of them not only trading into the draft, but then essentially taking a swing on one of the highest upside guys left that you can make an argument for. If you look at who was picked from, from 43 all the way down to 60, you had Greg Brown, Sharif Cooper and BJ Boston are probably the three guys you can make your argument for in terms of highest upside left on the board. So Greg Brown being, in my opinion, the most massive swing out of all of them because of the type of athlete that he is. If things start to work out for that man, you mentioned him potentially becoming a dynamic um, lob threat in pick and roll, being the floor spacer, the transition athlete. And then if he's able to give you some things defensively if he becomes a lot more disciplined even more so than he started to be towards the end of the texas season on that end then we're talking about a really really interesting player it's just taking the bet on that guy and having the right resources in place to help him actually reach his potential again i just i just don't know if portland <laughs> is the right place for him to reach it but me who knows maybe Maybe he even ends up somewhere else with another team who who has a better G League program in place in time. Maybe maybe by like year four or five, he's in a completely different situation, and maybe he does blossom into some of that player that you were outlining, season, uh, Stephen. It's going to be really interesting to see where he ultimately um, ends up for the bulk of his career and what type of player he develops into. Because, yeah, one of the top five athletes in the class, I was really high on him coming into the season. Uh, I'm, I'm not totally out on him. 
but he he Just definitely fell high, right? he, he fell pretty fast uh, outside of what I would consider to be my tier one through four guys. So, but but nevertheless, we wish nothing but the best for Greg Brown. That that's pretty much the bulk of the podcast today. The Minnesota Timberwolves. I mean, they're they're undrafted guys that they targeted um, McKinley Wright out of Colorado, and then Isaiah Miller. Do you have, do you have any any words to say on on either of those guys, Stephen? I mean, McKinley Wright. He was a, a decorated senior point guard for Colorado. He just he just never jumped off the page for me when, when I watched them on film. Like I I I was always a bigger fan of Matt Coleman, the Texas point guard, who actually had a pretty good summer league run with mm-hmm. the Sacramento Kings, as well as Ja'Cory McLaughlin. I ended up really coming around to him as being um, a potential steal in, in the undrafted market. I would have definitely taken him in the second round. I think he's going to have. Um, a decent NBA career as well. McKinley Wright was always that third guy in the senior point guard conversation for me, or he ended up being the third guy. But he, yeah, he just never popped out of me. I understand that he did some things at the draft combine. He showed some of his, his pick and roll prowess that he was able to show at Colorado. He's a competitive defender at that guard spot. But yeah, he just he just never jumped out at me as being one of these guys that I'm sold that he's definitely going to make it in the NBA. So you have any thoughts on on, on McKinley Wright? Well, to be honest with you, he made my top 60. I had him 51st, and I kind of have an affinity for senior point guards. And look, his three-point shooting numbers aren't sexy, but, you know, 85% from the line, almost 50% from the floor, 15 points per game, four rebounds, almost six assists. And if you check his synergy numbers, it kind of, the tape lays it out a little bit um, more clearly than synergy, albeit synergy is still fairly kind to him. You know, he's very good, rated in the uh, 73rd percentile defensively. And then on the offensive side of the ball, not so shabby either. He He's rated out as, what, the 78th percentile on the offensive end. Sometimes you just need guys on, on your team who are going to be selfless. And you don't really have a lot of those guys in Minnesota. So I don't, I don't mind them, especially with me having a second-round grade on him. Obviously, um, signing him to, to participate in Summer League, I actually think that was a very smart idea. Um, they didn't draft him, so I don't have a grade prepared. But I mean, look, if you're going to get a guy undrafted who's who I have projected be a second round pick, I would give it a solid B to B minus range. You know, he's he's a smart player, very capable in the pick and roll on the offense and the defensive end. Offensively, he was in the 93rd percentile with the ball in his hand. And then on the defensive side of the ball, similar thing. He graded out as as very good on that side of the ball too, 77th percentile. So McKinley Wright coming to Minnesota might be not so sexy, but it it could end up being a, he he could be one of these guys to where he's like ninth tenth man on on a roster, and I think that that's an okay area for a second round to undrafted player could be. Yeah, I mean he is on a two way contract with them, so well we will see if he ends up breaking through to that Minnesota Timberwolves team. I think that. Listen, they they need as much professionalism as always in that locker room as possible. And if there is one other thing I'll say about McKinley Wright is that you, you, you've heard him in interviews. You saw how spirited, how passionate he was about leading his team to in Colorado to any success that they had in the Pac-12. He, he is an out or at least seems like an outstanding individual. So I'll, I, I will give him that benefit of the doubt. Absolutely. But that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. Steven, again, it was an absolute blast finally having you on my show, my friend. I'm, I'm so happy that I was able to return the favor for all the love that you and – 
and everyone at Off the Ball Network always gives me. I'm I'm more than happy to always return that favor to you guys. Again, one more time for my audience, Stephen. Where can everybody find you, and and where can they check out your work? Subscribe to the pod, the whole nine yards. Well, first things first, you know, Nathan. Um, not only am I just happy that I'm on the show as a as a you know a podcaster, but just as a fan, dude. I listen to you and your work all the time. I listen to Corey. And, you know, and the work that they do over at, um, you know, draft deck as well. So when I saw that both of you guys were on a show together, I had to tune into that. So y'all do such tremendous work here. Shout out to you, Kevin, again, man, behind the scenes, making it all happen. Y'all put on such a tremendous show. But um, as for me, you can follow me on Twitter individually at Stephen G Hoops. You can follow Off the Ball Network on Twitter at OTB underscore network. You can follow that on Instagram or Facebook. Facebook at Off the Ball Network. You can follow the the new show that we're posting up, Draft Capital, anywhere um, at Draft Capital NBA. Look up anywhere podcasts are available. Breaking the game and Draft Capital. We're making a lot of things happen this this year. You know, we just wrapped up our one year anniversary at Off the Ball Network. A, a lot of cool things happening. Uh, Nathan, in, including you being on the show a, a couple of times in one year, man, that was such a big treat for me. And moving forward, I can't wait to link up with you and have you on the new show, uh, Draft Capital, man. It's going to be a good time. Yes, sir. I will I will be excited to definitely link up again in the future. And to my audience out there, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you aren't following us on Twitter by this point, I, I don't know what to say, man. Follow You're us. Messed at- up. You're messed <laughs> up. Yeah, definitely. Give us a follow at Draft Deeper engage with us in conversation, whatever I'm talking about. I always love to see opinions or or tweets back to me. I love that dialogue that emerges on social media because that's how we get better by sharing points with one another and, and helping to further educate each other about the game of basketball. That's why this platform exists. That's why it happens. Steven engages with us all the time over there. And and I love talking with him about anything hoops related. So give us a follow, join in some of that conversation and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get it, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, leave a five-star rating, leave a review, give us some feedback. Any reviews at this point are are much appreciated to help continue growing the the podcast. We will be back definitely with another uh, draft grades podcast. We need to get some more divisions out of the way. After this one, we got four more left. And then I already alluded to some of it on social media. I'm going to be engaging in some tier rankings, going back through some previous draft classes. I'm going to nail down some of those draft picks in in my tier system that I established for this year's draft. This was Draft Deeper's first full draft cycle for 2021. So it'll be really interesting to go back and see where some of these other guys would have rated out from a tiers perspective and where I see the role ultimately being in the NBA. Because I want to go back as far as 2017 for one of those pods. I mean, that that's going back a really good amount because now we're about like four to five years deep into that process. So that's going to be really interesting to see where some of these guys ultimately landed compared to what I thought about them um, back in those days when I was doing evaluations for, for other platforms. So thank you all again for tuning in. Subscribe. Plenty of content coming. And then 2022 is right around the corner. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Thanks for listening. 